Okay, I think we can we can get going. I understand everybody has been let in who was in the waiting room. Um, a very, very warm welcome to you all to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening, who is Mary Louise Gill, who's the David Benedict Professor of Classics and Philosophy at Brown. Um, Mary Louise works on ancient Greek philosophy and especially on the metaphysics of Plato and Aristotle. She's written books on Aristotle on substance, on Plato's Parmenides and his philosophers and edited collections on self-motion, on unity, identity and explanation in Aristotle and also the Blackwell companion to ancient philosophy. She's currently working on Aristotle's hylomorphism and the talk this evening is drawn from that work uh, and is entitled Aristotle's Hylomorphism Reconceived. So Mary Louise will talk for um, under an hour, 55 minutes or so. Um, then we'll take a five minute break and then we'll move into um, discussion when I'd like to suggest people put Q for question or F if they have a follow-up in the chat and we can manage the discussion in that way. Um, and Holly has posted Mary Louise's handout in the chat, which I'm hoping is available to everybody who's in the meeting now. If people enter in a moment, we may post it again so that that might um, crop up on your screens. But without further ado, a very great pleasure to introduce Mary Louise. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this invitation. Um, so this this paper is um, actually part of a, it's the second of two papers that are, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about the first paper before moving into the one uh, that uh, this, the metaphysics theta, which this paper focuses on. My handout is designed to help with all my twos. I speak of, two versions of hylomorphism. I speak of two models of potentiality and actuality. I speak of two prongs of Aristotle's solution. And I realized, oh dear, <laughs> this is all gonna get very confused. So hopefully the uh, handout will help uh, clarify. All right, metaphysics theta studies the topics of potentiality and actuality. And many scholars think that Aristotle broaches these topics once he has answered his main questions in Zeta and Eta. In Zeta, he asked, what is primary being? After arguing in Zeta 1 that substance, usia, is primary being, a being existentially, logically, and epistemologically prior to quantities and qualities and other categorial beings, he devotes the rest of the book to Usia itself, what it is, so as to decide what entities count as primary substances. I differ from the leading interpretive consensus that Zeta Eta adequately answer the main questions about primary substance and contend instead that metaphysics Theta continues the same investigation as Zeta Eta and using dunamis and energia as tools, arrives at a striking new conception of hylomorphism, different from that in Zeta Eta, and enabling Aristotle 
to defend the substantial primacy of living organism, organisms consisting of matter and form. The first section is titled The Predicative and Genus Differentia Versions of Hylomorphism, my first pair. <laughs> According to the dominant scholarly view about substance in metaphysics Zeta and Eta, of which there are many varieties, Aristotle revises his earlier view in the categories that living organisms, such as a particular man and a particular horse, are primary substances, though he keeps the predicative scheme articulated there. Once he has analyzed such entities into matter and form in the physics to explain their generation, metaphysics Zeta considers the three candidates for primary substance, matter, form, and the hylomorphic complex of both, and awards primacy to substantial form. The item responsible for making a hylomorphic complex the distinct thing that it is. The hylomorphic complex is a derivative entity dependent on and defined in terms of two more basic entities, its form and its matter. The composite lacks the unity Aristotle requires of a primary substance. I agree with the consensus that the hylomorphic complex is downgraded in metaphysics Zeta, but in my view, Zeta tells only part of the story and uses an apparatic strategy to set out difficulties. As I understand metaphysics Zeta, Aristotle shows that nothing succeeds as primary substance. Not some property-less matter, Zeta 3, not the hylomorphic complex, including ordinary Aristotelian matter, Zeta 4 to 11, and most provocatively, not substantial form, Zeta 13 to 16. If I'm right, Aristotle has by no means answered his main questions, though he does reveal the source of the trouble, a conception of matter rooted in his theory of change in the physics and recalled in metaphysics Zeta 7 to 9. According to physics 1 and 2, a material object is generated from matter, call this the pre-existing matter, which persists the object as the subject for the form of the object, call this the constituent matter, and survives as the same stuff when the composite is destroyed. Given that conception of matter, the hylomorphic complex and its matter have different persistence conditions, and the relation between form and matter within a complex is accidental. Form belongs to the matter, but the form is defined as what it is without reference to the matter, and the constituent matter is defined as what it is without reference to the form. Now, on the handout, uh, this should be uh, number five. I did three motives. So for some variation from the twos, I have three modes of predication from uh, posterior analytics, one, four, and the accidental predication is number three. I call Aristotle's hylomorphism in Zeta and Eta 1 to 5 the predicative version of hylomorphism. The conception of matter 
as persisting intact through substantial change is, I claim, the source of the problem of substance in metaphysics zeta and the main obstacle present, preventing Aristotle from adequately answering key questions about primary substance. Let me repeat, the conception of matter as persisting intact through substantial change is, I claim, the source of the problem of substance in metaphysics zeta. On my reading of Zeta Eta, Aristotle starts anew in Zeta 17 with a focus on form as cause of being for a hylomorphic complex, and Eta maps potentiality and actuality onto the Zeta scheme of matter and form. For, but these developments don't solve the major problem, because matter, though potentially the product is also actually something in its own right, something whose own essential properties ground the potentiality. To use one of Aristotle's favorite examples, a bronze sphere consists of bronze, which is potentially a sphere, but also actually bronze. Because of its own essential features, as a hard, resistant, meltable stuff, bronze is the sort of material suited to be made into and constitute a sphere. This is not the occasion for me to defend my reading of Metaphysics Zeta. That's the other paper that I mentioned. I want instead to discuss what I regard as Aristotle's second version of hylomorphism in metaphysics theta, a version which enables him to solve the problem of substance and award primacy to living organisms. Before I turn to my main topic, however, let me clarify why the conception of matter in zeta eta is more problematic than one might initially think. Matter persists pre-exists, constitutes, and survives the hylomorphic complex as some definite and actual stuff in its own right, definable without reference to the form of the complex whose matter it is. I'm not here talking about the so-called functional matter, arms and legs and other non-uniform parts, matter whose identity is determined by the form of the complex, as John Ackroll demonstrated in a seminal paper for this society, form necessarily belongs to the functional matter. In Zeta, as in the biological works, functional parts are destroyed together with the organisms, organism and cease to be what they were when severed from it. Instead, I'm talking about matter at the next level down. Stuff Aristotle calls proper, oikea, idea, or proximate, escate, matter, exemplified in zeta by flesh and bones. Scholars, scholars frequently identify the proximate matter as the functional matter, in contrast to the remote matter. This identification seems to be highly misleading 
For things with functional matter, the proximate matter occupies the next lower rung of material analysis, described in the first half of metaphysics, theta seven, as matter sufficiently worked up to be turned into the product without further transformations of it. For example, bronze but not earth is the proximate matter of a sphere. Earth must first be transformed into matter of sufficient complexity to be the proper or proximate matter of a sphere. Since the proper matter can survive the destruction of an organism, the functional properties belong to this matter accidentally. So the functional matter is determined in two ways, as the organism itself is, with reference to the form and with reference to the proximate matter. Because of the proximate matter, proximate constituent matter, the unity of living organisms is as problematic as that of a bronze sphere. This is the Zeta story, still. The proximate matter stands, at least as I read it, the proximate matter stands to an organism and its form as bronze stands to a bronze sphere and its spherical shape. This conception of the proximate matter undermines the substantiality of both the hylomorphic complex and its form. The composite is logically posterior to both the form and matter because it's defined with reference to both. And the form is existentially posterior to the matter because it depends on suitable matter for its realization. In the final chapter of Metaphysics Eta, Eta 6, Aristotle proposes a new way to think of the proximate matter and its relation to form. After discussing a bronze sphere and chastising Platonists and others, I think he includes himself, for treating the relation between form and matter on the predicative model in Zeta, he sums up his new proposal in a famous sentence. Quote, but as we said, the proximate matter and the form are the same and one. The one in potentiality, the other in actuality. Thus he, unquote, thus he proclaims the unity of material composites by appeal to the proximate matter as potential and form as actual. As I understand Aristotle's proposal in A to 6, the proximate constituent matter of a hylomorphic complex is potential and indefinite, determinable like a genus, and substantial form differentiates the generic matter into some definite thing. I call this the genus differentia version of hylomorphism as distinct from the predicative version operative in zeta and eta one to five. This is basically number seven on your handout showing the, the two versions. The pre-existing lump of bronze that can be made into a sphere is actually bronze and potentially a sphere. 
But on the new proposal, the lump of bronze is transformed into a sphere. There are not two things in the same place at the same time with different resistance conditions, the bronze and the sphere, but just one thing, the brazen sphere, which shares properties with the material from which it was made. The sphere is hard, meltable, and so on. But those are mere accidental properties of the sphere, though some of them are hypothetically necessary for the realization of the spherical shape. That is, necessary if the form of the hylomorphic complex is to be realized. The resulting object is determined as what it is by the form alone, the spherical shape, since the requisite dispositional properties of the matter can be teleologically derived from it. Aristotle's proposal about the proximate matter in eta six will prove to be the second prong, this is another one of my pairs, the second prong of a two-pronged solution. This is number six on your handout, where I distinguish the prongs. It will prove to be the second prong of a two-pronged solution in metaphysics theta and is developed in more detail in theta seven. The first prong, also employing the notions of dunamis and energia, depends on the second and is mainly developed in theta six and theta eight. I'll first argue that theta continues the same project as theta eta and aims to answer the original question, what is primary substance? Though from a distinctive perspective, far from rejecting the conception of primary substance in the categories, Aristotle will defend living organisms as primary substances by showing that they are hylomorphic unities after all. My second section is titled The Project of Metaphysics Theta. Metaphysics Theta One recalls in its first sentence the chief topic of Zeta Eta, the investigation of substance, usia, the primary sort of being, and the relation of other categorical beings, such as quantities and qualities, to it. Aristotle says that he will now investigate being in terms of potentiality, actuality, and work, to ergon and that he will first discuss dunamis in its chief sense, though it's not the most useful for his present purpose. For he says, dunamis and energia extend beyond the sphere of change. As I said at the outset, scholars widely believe that Aristotle has completed his investigation of substance in Zeta Eta and takes up a new topic in Theta, potentiality, and actuality. But in that case, his claim that dunamis in its main application, the context of change, is not the most useful for his present inquiry is odd. That application should be central to an investigation of potentiality and actuality as such. Whatever the current project is, the dunamis associated with change, even if not the most useful, evidently has some significant use because he devotes the first five chapters of Theta to it. 
Then at the start of Theta VI, he turns to Energia and says that Dunamis II will become clear in the course of his distinctions. Namely, quote, that we not only call Dunaton capable, that which naturally moves something else or is moved by something else, either simply or in a qualified manner, but also in another way, which is why in our search, we went through those two, unquote. As Aryeh Cosman convincingly showed, Aristotle asserts that he analyzed dunamis in contexts of change because that analysis somehow bears on the more useful analysis of energia to which he is now turning. Aristotle does not define energia in theta six, but instead lists examples to illustrate by analogy energia in relation to the capable and the list culminates into generalizations, which I've uh, put under number six. Quote, some of the examples show the relation of energia to dunaton as motion to potentiality, and some are related as substance to some sort of matter, unquote. Okay, those are gonna turn out to be my two prongs. <laughs> Later, I'll argue that both characterizations pertain to the project at hand, but most important for my current project, the second generalization confirms the close link between metaphysics theta and the investigation of being in zeta eta, and especially the problematic relation of substance, usia, both, and by usia here, I think he means both the hylomorphic complex and the form to some sort of matter, a problem to which I called attention at the start. Okay. My third section is titled Aristotle's Two Potentiality Actuality Models. Another one of my pairs that I've, I hopefully clarified under numbers um, three and four on the handout. Okay, I mentioned, okay, but I mentioned two prongs, that was number six, of Aristotle's solution to the problem of substance in two terms of dunamis and energia. The main part of Aristotle's solution opens in theta six and continues in theta eight with a curious break in theta seven where he takes up the proposal of eta six that, that proximate matter persists in the product potentially but not actually. In my view, the discussion in theta seven whose location scholars have found confusing fits exactly where it is. Theta seven is needed to prepare for the opening of theta eight. I will therefore follow Aristotle's lead in this paper and discuss the first prong of his solution in theta six and theta eight in two separate sections with theta seven, the second prong sandwiched in between. 
Since Aristotle indicates at the beginning of Theta VI <clears throat> that dunamis, the dunamis associated with change somehow relates to the upcoming investigation, let's briefly consider the first model. So this is number three on the handout. Change for Aristotle involves an agent that brings about a change and a patient that undergoes it. In Theta One, he defines the core notion of dunamis as the principle or source arche of change in another thing or qua other. An active dunamis for change. And then defines other notions with reference to that core notion. In particular, a passive dunamis for change is, quote, the principle or source of passive change in the thing itself that suffers by another or qua other. These are from metaphysics theta one. And I have them under number three on the handout. When something undergoes a change, it acquires a property it previously lacked. The agent either has that property as its active dunamis, or in an artificial change, it has it in mind. For instance, fire is hot and makes other things hot. A doctor, in virtue of her knowledge of health, imposes health on someone sick. In the course of a change, the agent assimilates the patient to herself by transmitting to the patient the form she possesses. According to the so-called transmi um, transmission theory of causation, also sometimes called the uh, synonymy principle, the agent of change has the property it transmits to the patient and has it more eminently. In some cases, the agent transforms the patient into a new agent with its own active dunamis, human generates human. But in many cases, as when a doctor cures someone sick, the healthy state acquired by the patient is a passive state, a disposition to respond appropriately to the environment. In physics three, one to three, Aristotle defines change, the patient's transition from the privative to positive state as an actuality of both the agent and patient, though located in the patient. The actuality is incomplete because its completion, the product, lies beyond the process and terminates it. Aristotle devotes time in Metaphysics Theta to the first potentiality-actuality model, even though he says it's less useful for the project at hand, because the second model involves the same basic elements, or so I believe. An active dunamis in the agent, a passive dunamis in the patient, and two main actualities, a kinesis and a product. But Aristotle modifies the core meaning of dunamis in one decisive respect at the start of theta eight, a passage I'm going to come uh, translate later. And the resulting scenario is entirely different from the earlier one. Whereas on the first model, 
The kinesis is a change in the patient from one state or location to another. On the second model, the kinesis is an activity, a complete actuality, a motion that expresses what the agent is, which I've tried to display in um, diagram four. Now consider again the end of the analogy passage in theta six, which I've laid out in number six on the handout. After giving a series of examples, something building, to something able to build, something awake, to something asleep, something seeing, to something sighted with eyes shut, something separated out of the matter to the matter, and the rot to the unrot, in which one item in each pair is the energia and the other the capable. Aristotle announces in the key sentence I quoted before, in, which is in number six, some of the examples are related as kinesis to dunamis, and some are related as substance, usia to some sort of matter, tenahule. Some of the examples, such as building, belong to the first model, others, being awake, seeing, belong to the second. But both generalizations apply to both models. On the first model, the model for change, number three, someone building stands to someone able to build as motion kinesis to potentiality, and a brazen sphere stands to a lump of bronze as substance to some sort of matter, the pre-existing matter. On the second model, which is number four, the diagram, Aristotle, someone seeing stands to someone sighted with eyes shut as motion kinesis to potentiality, dunamis, and a brazen sphere stands to its constituent bronze, the proximate constituent matter, as substance to some sort of matter. Kinesis in the summary is an instance of one of two sorts of energia, the other being usia. That's uh, the passage I cite in number six. At the same time, the term kinesis here specifies a genus covering two sorts of motions, one proper to the first model, the other proper to the second. The generic use of kinesis motivates Aristotle's famous distinction later in the chapter between kinesis in the strict sense, change and energia activity. As for energia as substance, usia, on the first dunamis energia model, a substance is the product of change and differs in form from the matter from which it emerged. By contrast, on the second model, the substance will prove to be both the agent and product of its motion, maintained and enhanced by the activity as the very thing that it is. The key revision at the start of theta eight, a passage we'll examine in due course, concerns an active dunamis designated by Aristotle as nature, phusis, and it differs from the active dunamis on the first model in one vital respect. Nature is a source of causing motion, though not in another thing as on the first model, but 
in the thing itself, quay itself. That's what he says. Now, how can a thing act on itself, quay itself? This is not like a doctor curing herself, a situation explained by the first model. Theta 7 deals with the relation of substance to matter and and that's theta seven, deals with this relation of substance to matter and directly precedes the striking announcement at the start of theta eight, because Aristotle's grand proposal depends on having already solved the problem of how substance relates to its proximate matter. That solution justifies him in saying that an agent in virtue of its formal nature acts on itself as patient, and in so doing, acts on itself, quay itself. It can act on itself, quay itself, only if the proximate matter of the entity does not compromise the unity of the hylomorphic complex. If it does, then the thing acts on itself, quay other, like a doctor curing herself. We now turn to the second prong of Aristotle's solution, the relation of substance, usia, to some sort of matter, tinahule. So my fourth section is matter and potentiality in theta seven. This is the chapter sandwich in between the first prong dealt with in theta six and theta eight. Metaphysics theta seven on matter as potential develops a propo the proposal in eta six and seems to interpret interrupt the discussion of energia in theta six to eight. Aristotle's organization makes sense once we realize that theta six introduces the second dunamis energia distinction and announces in its twofold generalization two strands of his solution. First, the relationship, the relation of kinesis to dunamis exemplified on the second model by activity to something that is or has a dunamis for that activity. For instance, seeing to sight or to something able to see. And second, I'm now referring again to number six. And second, the relation of usia to tina hulain, substance to some sort of matter exemplified by the hylomorphic complex or its form as usia and the proximate matter as Tadunaton. For instance, to use the examples that Aristotle went through in Theta 6, something that has been worked up out of the matter to the matter, or the rot to the unrot. Theta 6 and 8 focus on the first relation, kinesis to dunamis, and Theta 7 focuses on the second, usia to tinahule. The first part of Theta 7 asks when an entity is properly called potential and argues that something is potentially in some end state when it is sufficiently worked up that it can be in the end state without further changes of it. Earth is not yet potentially a sphere because it must first be combined with water and worked up into copper or comparable stuff and then copper combined with tin to yield bronze. But once 
the ingredients have been transformed into appropriate matter. There is stuff of a suitable kind to be a sphere and retain that shape. The potentiality to be in the end state is grounded in what the material is, its own actual identity. This is what Aristotle calls the proximate matter, as opposed to some more ultimate stuff that can be worked up into that matter. The second part of the chapter focuses on the product. And the driving question is, does the entity designated as potential in the first part of the chapter persist in the product as something actual as well as potential? I understand the passage Aristotle answers that it depends on what sort of continuant and what sort of change we're talking about. If we're talking about a man who comes to be healthy, musical, or pale, then the persisting subject, the man, remains actually a man when his potentiality to be healthy, or musical, or pale is realized. The complex, for instance, a pale man, is an actual man characterized by an accidental property. This is tried to display in on the first uh, diagram under number seven on your handout. The subject in this case is a toddy T, a definite thing of a particular sort. Aristotle retains the predicative model from Zeta for the the relation between a hylomorphic complex and its properties, both accidental and essential. But the situation is different for the form-matter relation. And now I'm going to quote a bit of theta seven, the end of it. In cases not like that, that is not like a physical object and its properties, but the item predicated is some form and definite thing, toddy t. The proximate subject, to eschaton, is matter and material substance. And calling a product vatin, a caninon, that is specifying it adjectivally with reference to its matter and its properties turns out to be quite correct since both are indefinite. As I construe this important passage, form-matter predication differs from ordinary predication. The item predicated is said to be some form and definite thing, and the matter of which it is predicated is variously described as indefinite, potential, and not a taditi. I'd also argue that he says, calls it a universal, a catholic, that's controversial. We, we specify the product adjectivally as thatan with reference to it, that is with reference to the matter. For instance, as a brazen statue or a wooden box, much as we specify an object with reference to its non-substantial properties as for instance, a brave man or a red box. I earlier labeled this view the genus differentia version of hylomorphism. 
According to the genus differentia version of hylomorphism, the matter is present in the product only potentially and not actually. And I call it generic matter. I mean, this is the key idea that the matter on this second model survives in as the constituent matter only potentially. This is in his discussion of mixture in Generation and Corruption 110, Aristotle declares that the ingredients of a mixture exist actually before they are combined, but are only potentially present in the compound. Ingredients of the original sort can be extracted by destroying the mixture. And in that sense, they are potentially present, but they are not actually there in the compound. The matter is transformed into something of greater complexity at the next level up. At the same time, the presence of those constituent materials is felt in the mixture because the compound has certain properties owing to its ingredients. Bronze, a compound of copper and tin, has the color, the strength, and rigidity, the malleability, and other dispositional properties it has because of the metals used in its composition. It shares some properties with its ingredients, but its own essential features, which differentiate it from them, are not the same as theirs. Okay, this section is titled Dunamis Energia and Usia in Theta 8. So we come back now to the first prong. Immediately following Theta 7, Aristotle opens Theta 8 with the following important statement, and I quote, since we've distinguished in how many ways prior is defined, it's evident that energia is prior to dunamis. I mean, not only prior to the dunamis that has been defined, which is said to be a principle of causing change in another thing or qua other, but generally every principle of causing motion and rest. For nature, phusis too, is in the same genus as dunamis, since it's a principle of causing motion, though not in another thing, but in the thing itself, qua itself. This passage should remind us of Aristotle's statement introducing the notion of energia and the second potentiality-actuality model at the start of Theta 6, the last part of which I quoted before, but I now quote it in a bit more detail. Quote, since we've talked about the dunamis spoken of in connection with change, let's distinguish what energia is and what sort of thing it is. And indeed, the capable, tatunaton, will be clear at the same time in our analysis. That we not only call that thing capable, which naturally moves something else or is moved by something else, either simply or in a qualified manner, but also in another way, which is why in our search we went through those two, okay, what we went through in theta one to five, the first potentiality actuality model. 
The beginning of Theta 8, Aristotle tells us what the other notion of dunamis is. It's a principle of causing motion, not in another thing or in the thing itself qua other, as on the first model, but a principle of causing motion in the thing itself qua itself. And this, he announces, is the things, is a thing's nature. Both passages invite us to think about the second dunamis energia uh, distinction in light of the first. And as I interpret the passage in theta six, Aristotle went through the first distinction in theta one to five for the sake of the second. We can flush out the second model by appeal to the first. While the passage in theta eight mentions only an active dunamis, the one in theta six recalls that the first dunamis energia model involves a passive as well as an active dunamis defined in theta one as a principle of being, being changed by another thing or qua other, a principle located in the patient. On the second model, the same individual is both agent and patient of its activities. And we could characterize the passive dunamis as a principle of motion and rest by the thing itself, quay itself. The patient does not come to be other than it was, as on the first model, but simply performs its own function. For an animal that actively sees, its soul is a collection of active capacities, including the active capacity to see, and its eye has a corresponding passive capacity, sight, equipping it, the animal actually to see. And similarly with other psychic capacities. So you think of the functional parts as having passive capacities corresponding to active capacities of the soul. Recall that in Physics 3, 1 to 3, Aristotle defines change as the joint actuality of the agent and patient and located in the patient. He repeats that idea in Theta 8. Then he contrasts the new situation. When there is no other product, he says, apart from the activity, the activity is in the agent, for example, seeing in the one that sees. The second model resembles the first in that activities are the joint actuality of active psychic, active psychic capacities and passive functional capacities realized in the organism's body. On the second dunamis energia model, the living body is entirely determined as what it is by the form of the organism. The proximate matter is not some definite stuff to which the functional capacities belong as properties, as in metaphysics zeta and eta one to five. <clears throat> Instead, the proximate matter, once form differentiates it into the functional parts, is itself a collection of properties of those bodily parts. Let me just repeat that. Instead, the proximate matter that's the matter one level down. Once form differentiates it into the functional parts, is itself a collection of properties of those bodily parts. On the new picture, when an organism dies, its matter is totally destroyed. 
because the nature of the functional matter is fully determined by the form alone. To be sure, the corpse looks for a while like the organism it was, but the parts of the corpse are what they were in name only and share only certain dispositional properties with the functional matter. For example, both live and dead flesh are soft and squeezable, and both live and dead bone are hard and brittle. Theta 8 aims to show that energia is prior to dunamis in various respects, and most importantly, in substance. At the start of the section arguing for this claim, Aristotle says that things posterior in generation are prior in form and substance. For instance, a man is prior to a boy and a human being to a seed because one has the form whereas the other does not. The transformation of something lacking the relevant form into something possessing it is a change explained by the first Deutimus Energia model. The section culminates with a passage differentiating situations dealt with by the second model from situations dealt with by the first. Quote, but in those cases in which there is no other ergon, oh, here I understand ergon to be product, apart from the activity, the activity is present in them, the agents. For example, seeing in the one that sees, theorizing in the one that theorizing, and life in the soul. Hence also happiness, since it is a certain kind of life. So it's evidence that substance and form, eidos, are energia. And according to this argument, it's evident that energia is prior to dunamis in substance. Unquote. Notice that Aristotle concludes from his series of examples that substance and form are energia. This claim is startling in light of the passage opening the chapter in which he said that nature, the form of an organism, is an active dunamis with some energia prior to it. Now form is itself an energia and prior to dunamis in substance. What is he saying? Consider the examples Aristotle lists to demonstrate his point that activity takes place in the agent, seeing in the one that sees, theorizing in the one that theorizes, and so on. These examples feature a living organism or its soul as the subject of the relevant activity something that already has or is the form. The activity takes place in the agent and thereby constitutes, enhances, and maintains the subject as what it is. Thus, the subject is both the agent and product of the, its activity, whereas change caused by an external agent brings something new into the world that wasn't there before, Activity caused by an organism's own psychic nature preserves the agent as the very thing it already is. My final section is titled Proximate Matter and 
potentiality. Why the need for self-maintenance? The last main section of Theta 8 answers the question and also responds to an issue I glossed over in quoting the tantalizing lines toward the end of Eta 6, where Aristotle says that the proximate matter and form are one and the same, the one in potentiality, the other in actuality. In the, in the full passage, Aristotle contrasts things like brazen spheres that are merely somehow one, hen posts, with things that have no matter and are simply just some one thing. Aristotle has demonstrated the unity of hylomorphic complexes, but the problem of proximate matter has not entirely vanished. In the last main section of Theta 8, Aristotle says that energia is prior to dunamis in substance in an even stricter sense than the one just discussed, because eternal things are prior to perishable things. Eternal things such as the sun and stars are prior to perishable things because their matter is not the sort that makes their activity tiring. And so they are always active. We living organisms, alas, grow weary of our proper activity, wind down and finally collapse. And Aristotle says that our matter, being a dunamis and not an energia, is the cause of that. Aristotle is here talking about the proximate matter, understood as generic matter. Because organisms are generated out of simpler matter and perish into simpler matter, they possess various dispositional properties inherited from their pre-existing proximate matter. And those properties, though they are either hylomorphically necessary for the functional parts or mere accidents of those parts are essential properties of simpler stuffs, such as the material flesh and bones left behind when an animal dies. Unlike ordinary categorical properties, such as qualities and quantities, these material properties drag us down and explain why complex organisms flag and easily degenerate into simpler stuff. Because residual material properties tend to subvert the unity of the whole, the unity of living hylomorphic complexes is unstable and must be vigorously maintained. Because staying the same is considerable work, an organism's characteristic activity is much more than an expression of what it is. Such activity also enhances, maintains, and renews it. The dynamic preservation is the joint manifestation of an organism's active and passive dunames. And that, active, that activity preserves the organism as the actual thing that it is. A living organism falls short of imperishable hylomorphic complexes such as the sun and the stars and of immaterial substances such as the prime mover because an organism's proximate matter ultimately undermines it. But for as long as it lives 
and actively pursues its proper activity, an organism is a primary substance with a nature responsible for its distinctive behavior, a substance whose formal nature wholly determines what it is and what it characteristically does. Thank you.